0: In the absence of any real certainty about the nature and intention of the early sources that tell us the story of the early Islamic period, how can we use them? What sort of methodological approaches may we deploy to elucidate the meanings of texts, often similar in their core elements but with divergent perspectives and intentions that cut across a range of genres? In The Rebel and the Imam in Early Islam, Professor Najam Haidar Associate Professor in the Department of Religion at Barnard College, follows his two earlier books on Shiism with an exploration of the link between early Islamic historical writing and late antique and classical rhetoric. Najam seeks not to supplant positivist approaches to history with his new methodology, but rather to ask new kinds of questions relating to intention, meaning, and community. I'm one of your co-hosts, Dr. Aaron Hagler from Troy University, and thank you for listening to the New Books in Middle Eastern Studies podcast. Now to our topic. Welcome, Najem, to New Books in Middle Eastern Studies. How are you? I'm fine. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Uh, So I really enjoyed reading your book, which is called The Rebel and the Imam in Early Islam, uh, which is due out later this year. We're talking about this in August before the book's initial publication. But uh, by the time anyone is listening to this, the book will be out. Uh, And what I enjoyed about it is the way the book calls into question some of our most fundamental assumptions about how we approach Islamic historiography. You begin with the question, I'm going to quote from you here. To what extent do contemporary approaches to the study of Islamic historiography reflect the presuppositions that informed the writing of early Muslim historians? In other words, uh, when we look at early Muslim historical writings, are we thinking about the right things? Are we bearing in mind the things that they were thinking about? Uh, This strikes me as a critical question, maybe the most critical question, as we seek to advance the field of Islamic historiography. Uh, Before we get into the book, uh, I'd like to take a moment, as is customary, to get to know you and to give our listeners a chance to get to know you. Can you tell us a little bit about your academic career? Uh, What brought you to where you are today as a scholar?
1: Um, Sure, I can can try to do that. Um, Actually, initially, I wasn't supposed to go into academia at all. As an undergrad at, at Dartmouth, I majored in physics, actually, and political science. <laughs> and I thought I was going to go the route of physics um, and or political science. And I ended up writing a thesis in college on Hezbollah. So I was very much interested in modern politics. Um, after college, I got a Fulbright to go to Syria, um, where I just wanted to learn Arabic. I couldn't go to Lebanon because it wasn't safe at that time, um, according mm-hmm. to the State Department anyway. Um, so then I, no. <laughs> so then I um I, I learned Arabic, and after that, I happened to get a scholarship to uh, do my master's at Oxford, um, where I studied classical and medieval Islamic history with Chase Robinson. Um, and I realized I actually enjoyed that a lot. Um, after that, I took a, a year off. Uh, I taught public school in New York City, American history, and after that, I had to decide sort of what direction I wanted to go. I had a choice between, law school, I had gotten into one and deferred, or graduate school in Near Eastern Studies at Princeton. And I eventually chose Princeton. Um, and I'm not sure I would make that same choice today, to be perfectly honest. Uh, my first day of grad school was 9-11, uh, 2001. Um, and wow. yes, everything changed <laughs> at that point. Um, so I don't know if if, if if it had been a year later, I don't know if I would have made the same choice. But in any case, I decided to to pursue a uh, degree in Near Eastern Studies at Princeton, where I studied with uh, Michael Cook and Hussein Madarzi primarily, um, finished my dissertation in about six years, I spent three years at Georgetown as a visiting assistant professor, uh, then one year at Franklin Marshall, um, and then in 2009, I was hired um, as an assistant professor at Barnard here at Columbia, and mm-hmm. I've been there ever since, 10 years.
0: Wow. Well, that's awesome. Uh, congratulations on all that. Thank you. That sounds, that sounds really great. Um, so, um, like I said, this book is, is, was fascinating to me. Uh, what is it that inspired you to write this book in particular? We'll get into the specifics of it, I'm sure, as we go, but kind of where did this uh, idea for this book begin?
1: The idea for this book began, I think, over 19 years ago. It was really as a master's student. <clears throat> I think like most uh, graduate students, Especially ones of, of a Muslim background. So you know, I was I was raised in a Muslim family. Um, when we, when you get to graduate school in Islamic studies, uh, one of the first books you're you're asked to read is Hagarism, um, by no, Cronin no. Cook, and it completely uh, disorients you. It it, it really um, is unbalancing, and so the the reactions you get uh, range from uh, a defensiveness to sort of um, I guess despondency. I don't know. You you, you it's really jarring. It, it sort totally changes your your worldview, and it did that.
0: It's jarring. It's, it was jarring, even for those of us who are not Muslim by background. I'm sure that that's true. It's
1: just, it's different. Um, and my initial yeah. reaction was so defensive. Uh, and um, so I spent a few years at, at Oxford, trying, struggling with the issue of, of sources and what do we know about early Islam, and what can we know. Uh, and so when I applied for graduate school at, at at Princeton, the reason I chose to work with Michael Cook, uh, and my entire application to Princeton was was shaped around the idea that I want to prove him wrong. So I went mm-hmm. there and I applied. And when they asked me in the little interview, why do you want to come here? I said, well, if I can prove to Michael Cook that he's wrong, then I've made a good argument. Um, and for some reason, Michael was okay with that. He was like, sure, come on in. Um, and then I, I focused on that. I focused on that for, for, for a long time. And eventually, um, I, I didn't feel like I was making very much progress. And the whole debate about our um, early sources, uh, voracious, Um, or do they, do they accurately depict what happened or are they fictional and novelized? Um, I, I didn't find a way, I couldn't find a way around it. And so I just sort of shifted my focus to other things. So my first two books actually were about, um, either historical memory or they were about using non-literary historical sources to do history. Um, and it was only after I finished Mm -hmm. both of those projects, um, around 2011, uh, so 12 years after I started graduate school that I decided to come back to this topic. And the reason I decided to come back to this topic was that I'd spent a significant amount of time here at uh, Barnard in Columbia thinking about more theoretical um, issues surrounding um, historical writing. I thought a lot about genre and I'd begun to sort of delve a little more into late antique historical studies. Um, And all of these things sort of came together with some faculty conversations I had here um to 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 allow me to re-engage the subject matter in what I thought was uh, a more productive way.
0: Well, the engagement with these these early sources that you talk about is clear, and it's very, very deep. And uh, I, I appreciate that it's trying to push historiography into new directions. so let's uh, let's get into the weeds a little bit if you don't mind. Um, I, I love the, your I love your approach to texts. You divided the three your book has three case studies. Uh, And you divided them into, and by implication, all the early narratives into three parts, right? So three narratives into three parts. Uh, You call the first part a core structure. Uh, The second part you call rhetorical elaboration. You also call it narrative elements. And the third is interpretive framework. Could you describe what each of those is and talk about what kind of new information this sort of approach may glean?
1: So... I should take a step back and talk a little bit about about where that model comes from. And then I'll go into each of the the three elements if I could. Um, By all means. So I I teach this class, and it's not really my class. It's a class um, that Devin Stewart um, has created on the Quran. Um, And part of what that class does, what the syllabus is about, uh, is comparing narratives. So it compares biblical narratives to Quranic narratives. i've taught that class multiple times now and one of the things i really noticed in teaching that class was how um the stories that the quran was presenting from the the hebrew bible were 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 inflected in very particular ways certain aspects of them would be changed and the argument that the quran was making was embedded in the changes that were being made to the stories so an example of that would be the story of abraham uh, and lot and the visitors so in in the bible these visitors um, come to Abraham. Abraham cooks them food. They eat the food. Uh, eventually they move their, they move on to, to Lot. And then Abraham realizes what's happening here that Sodom is gonna be destroyed. And he has a conversation with God where he negotiates with God to the point where God says that if there are a certain number of righteous people um, in the city, then the city won't be destroyed. Now, the same story mm-hmm. is told in the Quran uh, in its own way. Uh, and in, in this story, uh, these, these guests show up, these visitors show up, and Abraham cooks them food, but they won't eat the food. And when they don't eat the food, that's when Abraham realizes that they're not of this world. And then later when, the, when they move on, um, it, when Abraham tries to negotiate with God for the lives of the people in, uh, of, of Sodom, um, God in the Quran says, you have no role in this. I, you know, the, the idea is clear that God does not negotiate with human beings. So what I found interesting, Mm -hmm. and this happens over and over again in the Quran, is that it was the changes that the Quran was making in the narrative uh, where the meaning rested. So it was a competing notion of the relationship between human beings and God that was embedded in the story. So that was one of the things that I I began thinking about was how narratives are used and how historical narratives were used. And of course, Quranic narratives aren't the same as uh, early Islamic historical works, but it's just a way of thinking about narrative. Um, And I also Mm -hmm. began to to read... uh, Historiography, histori- historical works on late antique rhetorical historiography, where the argument was made that um, the audience knew the story beforehand and that what these historians were doing in the late antique period um, was, was was that they were making arguments through those narratives. So a classical example of this is Orosius, who takes the narrative of the fall of Rome, which his audience knows, and transforms it from one that blames Christianity for the fall of Rome to one that argues that Christianity extended the Roman Empire without it the Roman Empire would have fallen much earlier so what's going on here is that the story is that the narrative that everybody knows is maintained the same things happen but it's it's the meaning that's inscribed onto that narrative is different it can even be a, 180 degrees from what people have heard in the past so the argument rests in the change so on the basis of this, I began thinking about what early Islamic historical hist- writers were actually doing. Um, and I worked off of this assumption that they would probably have more in common with late antique writers than they would with the 18th century European writers or notions of historical writing that we tend to project backwards that value veracity and documentary um, preservation of knowledge. So on the basis of this, I said, well, what kind of model could we have? Uh, to explain the way that these early writers may have engaged with memory, with history. And if we draw on the dominant model in late antique historical writing, we would assume that they would share the same basic skeletal story, um, but then they would try to imbue it through embellishment um, with new new layers of meaning. And so the three elements Mm. that I came up with was there would be a core structure that was common to all renderings of this particular episode, the audience would expect that story to have certain elements. Um, mm-hmm. And then the embellishment would be in the spaces between the, the, the known factual points. And there you could have anecdotes and vignettes and you could have embellishments and you could have conversations. And a lot of these things, there, there was a rhetorical freedom for the writer to, to, to create and embellish. Um, and then through that flesh that was put upon the skeletal narrative structure, you would have an interpretive framework that was put forward. Um, and I think so that's the model I, I see, like a core story, um, the elements of which stay the same, then an entire area where you have room for embellishment and narrative elements, all to produce uh, a meaningful rendering of the past. So what Stephen Colbert might call truthiness is what is, <laughs> is being valued here as opposed to, to, to truth. Now, two elements here that, that I should point out. One is I don't like the fact that I even call it a core structure because I think the word that best represents what I'm talking about with the core structure is myth. It's a myth. I mean, it's what mm-hmm. late antique historians would call a myth, a story that is meaningful and holds some degree of meaning. Um, but I hesitated from using that in the book because uh, myth carries with it connotations for modern readers, which, I, which, which sort of suggest supernaturalism or they suggest fiction. They suggest something that's mm. made up, but that's not what the technical sense of myth would be. So I decided to, instead of saying myth, uh, use the far more colorful, you'll agree with me, I'm sure, uh, core structure as as, as my go-to. Um, <laughs> well, more academic, I mean, perhaps. Obviously, I'm joking. Um, and then the yeah, other yeah. part of it was that the parallel that I use with my students when I try to explain this is I say that uh The way that the past is being uh, reckoned with in this model um, is similar to how I got married, for example. So when I got married, uh, I met my my wife in oh, we we were in Pakistan, um, and then the idea was that I would propose to her and that she would say nothing and this' is sort of culturally the way it 's done. So the man proposes the woman says nothing, and her silence is interpreted as yes. Um, and it's just understood. It's not just in South Asian culture. It's in lots of, lots of places. Um, you know, if I were to go mm-hmm. to Oklahoma in the United States and someone were to ask me, how did you get married? And I were to say that story, I say, I went, I proposed, she said nothing, we were married. Um, then they might you know, raise an eyebrow and say, well, that's, that's, that sounds coercive a little bit. But if I were to say, <laughs> well, I proposed, she said yes, um, that second way of presenting the information would be more truthful even if it wasn't a documentary rendering of exactly what happened. So here I think that the, uh, you know, mm-hmm. writers are, are privileging truthfulness over, uh, sort of a documentary rendering of the past. And so that's how I perceive of that model.
0: Okay. So you have these, um, these different versions of the same story, uh, one in Tabari, one in Ibn Atham, et cetera. Right. Um, when they produce these new versions of the story, would you say they are more in conversation with each other, or more in conversation with their audience?
1: I think they're a conversation with 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 both. I mean, on, on one mm-hmm. level, I think every a lot of these writers, not all of them, know everybody. You know, it's not that there's a there might be a common corpus, but we're not sure who's reading what. Um, mm-hmm. But I do think that the story is is well known, and I think that for someone like nobody who's very well known, people know what he's saying. Um, and I think that they're producing other versions of, of the past with a competing you know, end in mind, a, a competing framework in mind. And I think audiences, mm-hmm. and this is something that I really try to emphasize in the book, they're not being deceived by this. It's not as if you know, the audience, so we can talk about what an audience is in this, in this period, but I don't think the audience sure. is being um, manipulated or, dis- or, or, or given a distorted rendering of the past. I think the audience is very much aware of the game that's being played here. So their understanding as they read this material is that they're 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 receiving a particular rendering, this author's rendering of what is meaningful in this story.
0: One of the challenges I think is trying to figure out which version or which core structure audiences might be aware of. I mean, I understand that the core structure is, is supposed to be common to all, but I guess where do they where do they get that information? I kind of I see uh, these, these flourishes, these narrative elements like you say, as evidence not of the authors attempting to dupe their readers, but uh, the authors endowing the stories with their chosen meaning through perhaps invented material with the reader or audience as a kind of targeted silent participant, I guess. And this was a, a later question I had written down, but it came up now. How do you take a silent audience into account? Uh, how, how do you know what they know, I guess?
1: Very carefully. I, I don't know. It's hard. <laughs> it's something I struggled with a lot. I mean, it's like, what is what is the core structure? Um, what do mm-hmm. audiences know? And we don't even understand what is common, uh, what would have been common knowledge in 1920s America. I mean, like going back in time, there might have been uh, references and stories that everybody knew in particular regions of the United States um, that's now lost to us. Um, and so trying to do that for a thousand years ago or 1200 years ago is, is a, is a daunting, daunting task. I mean, my shorthand Mm -hmm. for doing it is just to take every account that I can find and see what the common elements are and then say, this is probably the core structure of the narrative itself. But that lowest common denominator approach, I, I, it's not fully satisfying to myself either. I don't know how we figure out what people knew because we just, we, we can't, um, so I think even the core structures that I come up with, I I, I do think are 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 tenuous at at at, at you know at, at the at the very base level. I, d- I do think that um, that you have to move, that an attempt must be made to do this. And I do think that mm-hmm. if we read um, historiographical work from other regions, I mean, uh, one of the books I really like is this book called Textures of Time, which is on South Asian historiography. Where you know the authors make the the point that you know you just know there's certain stories that you just know that we just know we may never have even read them. I mean, I don't think I've ever read Little Red Riding Hood like a book, but mm-hmm. I know that story. Um, a lot of people have never read the Bible, but they know the biblical stories. Some of these narratives just sort of permeate the ether of uh, of of the environment for people, and they they're just known. Um, I can't tell you where I heard these stories for the first time, but I know what the general um, parameters of, of of that of those stories are. So I, I'm wondering even where the the common knowledge of a, of a narrative comes from. I'm not. I'm not. I mean, these are these are questions that I think are incredibly difficult to answer, and I think they that we need to begin to just start thinking about them. I don't know if they will ever be adequately answered, but I do know again that I don't under. I probably don't understand uh, what. The, the common cultural vocabulary of New Yorkers in 1950 was. Uh, or, but, I, but I think that it was probably very different from what we have today.
0: If that... mm-hmm. no, I, I don't even understand what's going on right now, to be honest. <laughs> so um, you picked three case studies to make your point. The rise and fall of Muhtar ibn Abi Ubaid, uh, the that uh, the takafi rebel uh, for the cause of Muhammad ibn al-Hanafiyyah uh, you picked the life of Musa al-Kazim the seventh imam of Twelver Shiism and the last years of Yahya ibn Abdullah who is a Zaydi imam obviously there's no shortage of options for episodes that contain the the requisite communal disagreement that may be compared for the kind of analysis that you do but what was it about these three in particular that you selected them over some of the other uh, shall we say controversial figures you might have chosen figures or events
1: Well, okay, I'll go through them one by one. I mean, I chose, I had a couple of ideas in mind here. Um, One of the factors was I wanted to have a a cross-section of historical genres. Um, It's Mm -hmm. another issue altogether about whether um, the genres that we think of actually fit the material in the early period. I mean, that's another question. It's a large question. But I wanted to have sort of a, a relatively equal distribution of chronographical works uh, prosopographical works, um, and, uh, straight out biographies. So I wanted there to be very different way, different types of material that I was using when it came to Mukhtar's rebellion. I also had in, in mind that the, this, this idea that I wanted to treat Sunni and Shi'i historical works together, because I think the separating, the separation of the two is, is highly problematic. We can talk about that, I think, hopefully later. Um, so Mukhtar is interesting because 12 or Shi'i works cover Mukhtar um, as well as non-Shi'i works. It's hard often to find uh, 12 or Shi'i works or Shi'i works in general that cover figures who aren't imams in a, in, a, in a broad kind of way. But we have that for Mukhtar. Um, and also, mm-hmm. for much of, uh, of Mukhtar's rise and fall, his rebellion, uh, most of the, the sources that I chose are chronographies. Um, and so they provide a very particular a uh, genre through which this model could be explored. Um, and so that's why I chose Mukhtar. I mean, he's one of the few figures where you can do uh, a study that cuts across uh, communal boundaries um, and do it effectively. Um, for Musa, especially so, so for the other two cases, the Yahya ibn Abdullah and Musa Qazim, I wanted to highlight the fact that even in cases that are very strongly weighted um, towards uh, particular forms of Shi'ism, we find that the model itself still applies. So for Musa Qasim, even though generally the Shi works, the Twelver Shi works, are seen as hagiographical sort of uh, documents that are theological in their focus. Um, and when the Sunnis cover Musa Qasim, it's seen as history, I guess, in quotes. Um, mm-hmm. What we find is that um, the, what the authors, what the Shi'i authors are doing and what the non shi authors are doing is very, very similar. Like they they're still adhering to the broader model that that I put forward. So I'm trying to show that there's an umbrella that 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 unites uh, across communal boundaries when it comes to historical writing. And Musa Kazim seemed ideal for that. He's covered in almost all the Sunni sources. Um, he's covered in Zaydi sources, Zaydi Shi sources, and of course he's also covered extensively in Twelver Shi sources. Now, with the case of Yahya ibn Abdullah, the reason that I wanted to focus on on that particular case is that. One of the true lacuna, I think, in early Islamic historical studies is the utter lack of interest given to Zaydi source material. So here I wanted to, to really highlight the Zaydi sources themselves, Zaydi historical sources. And again, the, the conclusion what one, one finds there is that the Zaydi sources are doing exactly what the non-Zaydi sources are doing. I think their approach to the material still, in the same, still adheres to the same model that I, that I lay out in the very beginning. So here in these three case studies, we can cut across genre um, through their selection, and we can also cut across communal boundaries and and, and begin to, to have a, a wider view of what historical writing is in the early period.
0: Okay. Um, I want to I ask you about something uh, that you mentioned in a footnote and something I've actually heard you say at, at uh, Mesa conferences, things like that. You don't like the word sectarian. You prefer the term communal. Um, and I guess this gets into the fact that there is this separation of Sunni-Shi works as, you know, we historians typically engage with them. Could you talk a little bit about that, why you feel like sectarianism is not a, an appropriate term and maybe why these sources, the Sunni versus Shi, should not be separated as much as they are?
1: Well, sectarian, I mean, I, I think sectarianism has a very particular genealogy, that word. Um, it's a very French genealogy and I think it's grounded in uh, a, a very Christian conception of orthodoxy and heterodoxy that I don't feel comfortable with. Um, mm-hmm. I think what we find in, in Sunnis and Shis um, are, I, I mean, I even hesitate to say co They're just two different takes on the same sources. So I, mm-hmm. I have, I just have trouble giving primacy to one and viewing the other as sort of an offshoot or in any way talking about what the relationship between the two is that, that that privileges a specific a certain type of categorization so when i'm interested when i say communal groups i just mean uh i feel like it's more useful because it, it takes sort of the the theological baggage out of it and just speaks of them as two separate groups of people um and i think that there were probably early on far uh, more communal differences and communal groups than than we have than we think of today so it's just it's a personal choice uh I, I, mm-hmm. I just think it it's it it hurts more than it helps to 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 describe Shiism as a sect. Rarely do you see Sunnism described as a sect, but to hear Shiism described right. as a sect.
0: Okay, and, and in terms of the works, you talked about how they've been maybe divided and you wanted to bridge that divide some. Um, why do you think they get divided? I mean, if they are, I mean, I know that it's easy for easier for us to, to think about these two diametrically opposed, you know, have been at war with each other since the beginning of Islam kind of nonsense. Um, maybe it's easier for American students to think of them that way. But how do the different works relate to each other, the, the so-called Sunni works and the so-called Shi works? What do they have in common and, and what do they... What do they, what do they not share? I guess. Well, I mean, I, I think that
1: the the real difference between Sunni and Shi'i works um, becomes just subject matter, what they choose to focus on. Um, and so, like I said, Shi'i works tend to focus primarily on on historical works or works that contain historical information. Tend to focus more on the lives of the imams. Now, historically, what generally mm. tends to happen is that you know, if if, uh, if if someone wants to to do some research into, um, let's take. Uh, the example of Musa Qasim, uh, then they'll look at what uh, Thabari says about Musa Qasim, or they'll look at what um, Baladri says about Musa Qasim. And that sort of becomes the the historical rendering of Musa Qasim. And then they'll turn to the Shi'i works like uh, Sheikh Mufid, and Sheikh Mufid will be like the hagiographic hey one, the crazy one. Right? It's the one that's that can't be relied on. And, you know, you laugh about that, but just go to EI2, the Encyclopedia of Islam, and go to the first uh, edition and the second edition and look at the biographies of the imam of the 12 or imams as they're presented there and the authors um who who wrote those entries completely privilege the 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 sunni historical works as being the ones that are more sober and reflective of quote unquote a historical reality and to the extent that the shi works are mentioned they're just mentioned as curiosities um as 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 clear theological, um, I wouldn't forgery might be the wrong word, but um, in the, their imaginations, I mean, I mean, they're, they're they're seen as utter and complete hagiography, and therefore not not useful. Um, and so, I, I think that when you actually look at the way that Musa Kazim, for example, is portrayed by Kitab by Sheikh Mufid, and you compare the way he's compare that with the way he's portrayed in uh, Khatib's, uh work, what you'll find is that there there is the exact same story. Musa Qasim is born in Medina. He has a reputation for generosity. He's arrested. He's released. He's arrested again. He's imprisoned in, in Basra. He's transported to, to Baghdad. And that's where he dies. That story is the same mm-hmm. in both. Um, and
0: That's your core structure that, right that's there, what, right?
1: Exactly. That's what I would call the core structure. And I think anybody listening to the story of Musa Qasim would expect all of those things to happen. Because that's what Musa Qazim's story is. If, if something happens mm-hmm. out of order, people would say, well, that's not the story of Musa we all, Everybody knows the story of Musa Kazim. But what Mufid mm-hmm. does, does with it is very different from what, uh, what uh, Khatib does with it because their intentions, their frameworks that they're trying to put forward are, are, are quite different. Even in cases where the anecdotes that they have, the vignettes that they have match, they alter them in very specific ways to forward a very particular perspective. Now, I'm not saying one perspective is more authoritative than the other, but I'm saying that the perspective is what matters here. Um, And so to say that one guy is just doing hagiography and the other one is doing history, although, you know, if we're going to go by certain standards, it's bad history, um, then that doesn't really get us anywhere. It's like you're you're removing half of the material you have or more and dismissing it for for cosmetic reasons, just because you feel that the Shi tradition is not as dependable as the Sunni tradition. But on what basis? I mean, we are perpetuating uh, a normative Sunni orthodoxy, even when we don't mean to, by making that assumption and by not engaging seriously with one type of material as historical material, um, rather just as theological material, whereas taking the other one as being authoritative, although flawed. And so part of the project was meant to, to show that, that, that all of these texts are doing very, very similar things. So if we take a step back, Will notice that they have much more in common in their approach than than the differences in terms of orientation may make may may give us the impression of.
0: Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I uh, I work closely with Ibn Kathir myself, and I have a, a a paragraph that I love, including basically every everything I write, where he just out and out calls the Shia liars, right? Um, but he doesn't offer a different methodology of history. He doesn't criticize their methodology. He just says they're wrong about this. So this is where the I guess the, the the narrative elements, the rhetorical elements come in where you can take the core structure and give it whatever meaning you want. And it's interesting that, that we, uh, in, in English language scholarship in particular, presumably German and French as well, uh, are privileging the Sunni over the Shia.
1: Well, all the authors that I mentioned, I didn't mention any names because I'm being nice, but all the authors, you can look them up. In Encyclopedia like of Islam, <laughs> the, the first and second edition, they're all European authors. Um mm-hmm. and it's shocking. It's shocking, Ari. I mean, you, you read some of those um, um entries and it's just like, well, obviously, you know, the Shia don't know what they're talking about. They're they're, they're just, they say crazy things. And here's some of the crazy things they say, but we're gonna forget about that. Um Madelung actually does a decent job of going through some of these distortions in his his book Succession to Muhammad, where he goes through mm-hmm. a couple of these entries and is like, What is this? I mean, how do you what there's no basis for these judgments?
0: Mm-hmm. And you know, it 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 extends even to more popular versions of the story. Uh, One of the books I got as a curiosity is called Muhammad and it's spelled the old fashioned way Muhammad and his successors. And it's by Washington Irving. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's basically just, you know, the Sunni version of history presented with a lot of uh, a lot of drama. Mm-hmm. It's, actually a, it's actually a fun read, but of course it completely dismisses all the Shia sources as well. But you know he's not a scholar, so what, what do we expect?
1: I have that book too, funny enough. I found that in a bookstore in London a few years ago and picked it up.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, it's a fun read. Yeah. I mean, I recommend it, not as a scholarly work at all. Um, so if we could uh, – this, this is all awesome stuff. I love it. If we could step back and take kind of a broader view. Mm-hmm. You have this uh, new approach where would you like this approach to kind of move the field? What do you, what kind of studies do you see going forward, perhaps based on this new methodology? I mean, what would you like to see it do?
1: I mean, I, I I don't know if my methodology is the best methodology. I probably, the publisher does not want me to say that. Um, But I, (laughs) I just, I mean, I just want a different type of, a different series of questions to be asked. I mean, I think we need to think about You think about epistemology, we need to start thinking about, well, you know, what these words mean um, to the people who were writing this type of material. Um, And I mean, I just I I put out my model in a very tentative way because it's just like sort of a first uh, salvo in this in this idea, uh, you know, of of not thinking about veracity and and fiction anymore, but trying to figure out what questions and what issues matter, matter to these these authors themselves. Um, I have a a student, Andrew McLaren, who's who's working on a a thesis right now, uh, examining Ibn Atham, Ibn Atham's work. Um, And he's asking very, very different questions. He's asking questions of composition questions of, uh, uh, you know, of motivation and questions of 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 how uh, authors would parse together sources in very particular ways. And he's very early on, but I'm giving him a plug already. Uh, But those are the types of questions that I'm interested in. Um, and, I, and I think that, you know, we might we need to start thinking about what it meant to write history in, uh, in this period. And we might not be able to get give, give great answers, but we can at least begin to ask better questions. I just, I mean, I, I really respect uh, scholars who go through, you know, the Syriac and, and Coptic sources and all of these sources and, and try to amalgamate from them historical information when combined with, with the, the early Arabic sources. And I think they're doing very valuable an important work, um, but I think that we there's a theoretical level of of just trying to understand what 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 the intellectual project of historical writing was that that I think has remained largely underdeveloped, and so the book is very much an, an attempt to ask people to, to to or scholars to begin to reengage that that material, and it's 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 shocking to me because if you look at Mamluk historians, um, if you look at or his, scholars of Mamluk history, or other periods within the Islamic, uh, within Islamic studies, or you look at other fields altogether, classical historiography or late antique uh, historiography. These issues are dealt with, have been dealt with for a long, long time. Um, the, these questions that I'm raising are not radical questions in those fields. It's just that early Islam is so underdeveloped theoretically as a discipline, and and I and I think that we need to begin to, to, to address that. I mean, I, I recall being at a, at a conference in, in London a few years back and I made a presentation and I gave some of the, some of what I presented in the book, I, I presented at the conference and Conrad Herschler raised his hand and he was like, yes, I know this. And I was like, I know, you know, this, you work on you work in a period where, where you all already know this. Um, but in, in, in my colleagues in early Islam don't really think about these issues. And so, a lot of this is just a call to, to begin to to engage these issues in a more serious way.
0: I think part of the problem is that we've got such a bottleneck with a guy like Tabari. So much seems to kind of go into or out of him that, you know, he just becomes this, uh, I don't know, very prominent figure. And it's hard to get around the, what I would like to call the tabarization of history. And what's interesting to me is when people start to you know, depart from, from Tabari, that's when stuff gets really interesting to me.
1: And and you'll find that like a lot of the really good work on, on, on early Islam, a lot of, of scholars who, whose work I really appreciate, <clears throat> you go through their footnotes and it's almost entirely Tabari. Tabari is, is the mm-hmm. dominant form for them. Um, and I, I think that that is beginning to change a little bit. Um, and I think that people are beginning to realize that there were regional historiographies that mattered a lot more. A number of works have come out, uh, uh, on, that, on, those, on those topics. And they're beginning to realize that it wasn't just an imperial universal history that mattered because that's what Thabari really is. It's an imperial history. Um, but other mm-hmm. types of histories also existed with other perspectives. And um, they, they really enrich our study of the early period. Um, and I think that they might not be as sexy as studying Thabari, but you know, a small local history of Mosul will teach you a lot. Um, especially the way it contrasts with uh, the perspective that that Thabari gives you.
0: And, And one thing I love about your approach is that it really does give an answer to the question of why do we need another version of this story, right? These stories appear over and over and over again, all these historians needing to weigh in. Um, and the, you know, the standard narrative is that, oh, this person was just copying from Tabari, this person was editing from Tabari, you know, based on Tabari, um, you give a, you give an answer as to what they were doing and why. And that's what I really appreciated about this book.
1: Well, the, for me, the, the, one of the funnest chapters to write here was the, the Mukhtar chapter, because I just didn't know mm-hmm. what I was going to find. Um, and so, you know, you sort. After three case studies, I have a sense of what Thabari is interested in, at least when he's working on the Abbasid and Umayyad periods. Um, you know, and it's not ground, you know, earth-shattering conclusions here. It's, I mean, he's mostly interested in the story of the rise and the fall of the Abbasids and their relationship with, their, with the Alids. And he's very much mm-hmm. interested in the dynamic that keeps these two branches of the family apart. And it's usually, in his, in his mind, outside players who intervene to undermine this familial unity. You see this popping up over and over again for Thabri. And that's based on just the three case studies that I've done, and I've done a few others for articles. But then you read someone, uh, uh, I mean, someone else. Like so, so if you want to read, for example, um, so tribal and ethnic, if you want to read Ibn Atham al-Kufi and his rendering mm. of Mukhtar's rebellion, what you find is that hes it's all about that, in that account in particular, it's all about uh, Molas, and it's all about um, you know, ethnic differences. It's all about you know, who you know, Arabs and non-Arabs. And that sort of becomes the framework that he works within. And so you begin to see a very different way of considering what Muhtar's movement was. And then you go to someone like uh, Baladri, and again, you find that he's not even interested in Shiism at all. He's interested in you know, non-Arabs and Arabs. But, but then when you, mm. you so you go like from from author to author and you see that some of them are interested in ethnicity others are, are, are interested in the Shiism of the movement others are interested in this regional political sort of uh, framework whereas others just use mukhtar as a propaganda tool for someone else so you end up with four very different versions of the same events and Tabari ha- does what he always does but others don't you begin to notice what the interests of each of these authors are on the basis of how they present the story. And it's just about word choice. It's about slight inflections in the way that, you know, an encounter is presented. And I hope I'm not going like all crazy when I read these because there's a tendency in uh, modern uh, Islamic studies, especially in historical works, to sort of, See cigars and, and, you know, like the Bakra is always Abraham. I mean, there's crazy conclusions that people, right, you know, come up with. And I hope I'm not overreading here. But I think in some of these cases, it's pretty clear what their interests lie and what they think the importance of the rebellion of Mukhtar is. For some of them, it's very much of a radical Shiism. For others, it's very much of a, a representation of the decline of Arab power in, as compared to non-Arabs. Um, as for others, it's just like a, a political story about the Abbasid's uh, oh, sorry, about the Umayyads on, on the one hand, the Zabarids on the other, and, um, and, and, you know, and, and just regional rivalries. I mean, they, they, all of these things pop up over and over again. And I think that that, that was very exciting to me, to see that those differences, and then to see how they break from Thabari in very particular ways.
0: Well, if you are going crazy, I can tell you, you're talking to the right person on the other end here. Whether the listeners are with us or not, um, that, that's up to them. But uh no, I, I, I love it. I think it's fantastic. Um so um we're we're coming up on our, our time limit here. So uh if I can just kind of close by asking you what you're working on now or or what you expect to see in the future.
1: I am working on raising two children under the age of three. <laughs>
0: congratulations.
1: Um congratulations. <laughs> uh so I mean I you know, when I when I started uh in academia, I had I had a certain number of interests. Um, one of those interests was historiography. Another was sort of memory, uh, historical memory, mm-hmm. um, and I've always had an interest in social history. And so I had these three ideas for 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 uh, larger projects, and now I've finished all three of them, and I'm at a place where I'm I'm sort of trying to 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 take a step back, read all the things that my graduate students have read, but I haven't. Um, and start thinking mm-hmm. about where I want to go. I mean, I have an idea of what I want to do. I want to work on uh, sort of Zaydi, social, Zaydi legal circles in Gufa. Um, and I have some ideas about how I might go about doing that. But for the most part, I'm just, I'm, I'm sort of open at this point to start start thinking about um, other avenues of, of research. And I have an article coming out soon on uh, sacred space. So looking at the Masjid of Gufa, um, and, and how it w- it's conceived of in, in Twelver Shi'ism. Um, I, I tend to not work in Twelver Shi'ism very often, so this was an interesting um, project for me. Also because the M- Mosque of Gufa is such a weird place for, for Twelver Shias, they're they don't endorse it as a holy place unambiguously. It's like a, a weird place that is both good and bad at the same time. And I was interested in the way that space is negotiated by religious communities. Those are two things I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about sort of Zaydi uh, legal diversity in Kufa because there was a lot of it, uh, especially in the second century. Mm-hmm. And then I'm thinking about uh, space and uh, maybe furthering my interest in, in the way that communities uh, interact with spaces historically.
0: All right. Well, I mean, listen, the, the, like I said at the top of the interview, this book isn't even published yet, so you know, asking you, well, what's next might might be premature, but it sounds like you've actually got quite a few ideas, but it also sounds like you're taking a, a well-deserved uh, <laughs> inhale. So c- congratulations on that. It. Uh, it's my pleasure. Uh, Najam, I'd like to thank you again for joining us today. Uh, the book again is The Rebel and the Imam in Early Islam, and it is published by Cambridge University Press this year, 2019. Uh, Najam, it's been a pleasure. Thank, thank you very problem. much. All right. Bye-bye.